now, say now. You're tuned in to the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host, Devon Pouncey. We are here at the Momentum Studios. Myself, Spencer Shea. Yep. We got a special guest, but we'll get to that shortly. Spencer, how are you? I'm doing really good, man. Uh, last night, Boxer G League Championship. Yeah, on yeah. On the call with Luke Winkler killing the game. How <laughs> was it? Uh, it was good. I mean, like the game was fun, but I'll, I'll keep it a buck with you. That was my first time doing play-by-play for a whole game. Yeah. And I was... <laughs> <laughs> I'm very critical of my performance. I was like, tell me more. Yeesh. Well, check it. I mean, you know, it's not paced the same as obviously as color. Right. Bottom line, it's completely different pacing. For sure. In fact, you set the pace as you well know. But also, it's not a game that's like, you know what I'm saying? It's not NCAA game. There's no, like, these coaches weren't calling timeouts. Bolger let his guys hang for the entire second half, yeah. just getting buried. Yeah, Zero yeah, yeah, timeouts. Yeah, 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 I'm like, yeah. all right, Jacob, you got to get get your coaching game up. But that's beside the point. Just, I mean, there's, you know, basically no stops. And so you're just boom, 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 boom. Going boom. nonstop. And yeah. And it, I mean, I, I guess I found a rhythm. But either way, it was fun as hell, man. You know, shout out to Luke Winkler for holding it down on the color tip for me and Coach Lunt was saving my ass because I didn't know anybody's names. And he's like, <laughs> as they're making shots, he's just standing next to me going, Braden Hart, that's Braden Hart. I'm like, Braden Hart for three? <laughs> I'm like, all right, word. Thanks, dog. <laughs> for but sure. It was, fun. it was fun, man. It was hella fun. No, no, no. That's super cool. That's super cool. Speaking of the boxers, we will be at it Friday, February 17th, as the boxers will face off against Pacific Lutheran University. It will be senior night for Pacific. So, Spencer... You and I's last game on the call this last season, game on buddy. The call for the season. It's bro. been a good year thus far. I've enjoyed it. Um, I'm looking forward to see what the Pacific women are going to do. Is um, they have clinched as of last weekend right. a, a spot in the conference tournament at the Division Three level. Well, at least in the Northwest Conference, it's not everybody makes the conference tournament. It's the top four teams. It's a two round tournament, one versus four, two versus three. The winner of those two matchups face off in the conference tournament title game. So congratulations to Pacific Women's Program. They've been having a great year, as expected, and they are walking into the weekend, um, you know, looking to close things out strong on senior weekend, but also preparing themselves for the following weekend, which will be the conference tournament that will likely be hosted in Walla Walla, Washington at Whitman University, unless teams don't win out this weekend that are expected to. Um, So 6 p.m. tip-off, 8 p.m. tip-off for the men's. I'll also be at Portland State tonight, as you'll hear this podcast after tonight's game, being that it'll release on Friday against Idaho State at 7 p.m. But I'll be back at Portland State Saturday night as well as they face off against Weber State. As far as DJing is concerned, I will not be DJing this weekend, but plenty of gigs coming up next weekend as the season is closing out and less games to be broadcasted. Y'all know that means that's a whole lot more um, music coming from me and spinning. And like I said, I got three gigs next weekend, so I'll tell you all about them on next week episode. But here we are today, as I mentioned to you all, we got a special guest joining us on the podcast, one that you might have heard us invite on this very podcast a couple of weeks ago. He is the press secretary for United States Senior Senator of Oregon, Ron Wyden. And a great, great friend of the show, Hank Stern. Glad to have you. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Absolutely. And it's an honor to have you, Hank. And and obviously, for one, we just got to give you your flowers um, in terms of you don't miss an episode of this podcast here. I and, do not. It, here's why. I, I just think you guys, you know, like you fill this really unique space in Portland um, and sort of in the podcast sphere of just sports and politics, which are two of my favorite things. And I mean, you guys say it, you're the intersectionality of both. And I, I'm a huge fan. And, and we appreciate yeah, that. Thank you. And, and, and I, I want to hear more about that, obviously, because that is our intent um, and that is our goal. But but here in Portland, there does seem like there is a little bit of a lack in that intersectional coverage. And I'm obviously speaking as somebody who's been in this sports media space um, for quite some time here in the market now. You as somebody that's also been in this media space and, and the journalism space for quite some time in this market. What is it that this podcast brings that you just kind of don't get around here, but you probably should get a lot more of? 
Yeah, because I to me, I, I think there's a lot of politics in sports, and there's a lot of sports in politics. It, you know, the thing that I love about both is you never know ultimately how it's going to turn out. It's not preordained. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of room, it's, it seems to me, to talk sort of about uh, the mechanics of politics. And sometimes that goes, you know, goes into sports metaphors. And sometimes uh, it's a lot of politics in sports, as you well know, uh, at every level. So, um, I, you know, I, I think there are shows, with sports shows, that will delve into politics occasionally. Um, depending on the uh, the issue of the day, and there are politics shows that when sports are thrust upon them, they will talk about that. But you guys do it consistently. And I, I I am a huge huge fan. Not to go all fanboy on everybody, but <laughs> when, 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 uh, I think you saw on Twitter when uh, I got the invitation, uh, I, I I snapped right away. That was uh, that was uh, really really very nice of you guys. Hey Hank, I got a question for you. So, yeah. uh, and and sort of echoing off of that, because I mean, obviously, you're in both of those spaces as we talk about, and you buy ink by the barrel. So, uh, my question is: is how much do you think the the discourse surrounding sports and politics has an impact? Keeping in mind that you know that, as you said, you don't really know how it's going to go. How much does the conversation, the discourse, have an immediate impact to the things that we talk about? It's gigantic. And, you know, I, I think it's more so today or it's more in your face today because it is not unusual for people in sports to be asked political questions. But I don't know if you guys have watched it. I started watching it last night on Netflix, uh, the new Bill Russell documentary. Uh, uh, I've no, I, I seen it, but I'm, I'm probably going to check it out tonight. I have oh, it man. bookmarked. I, I mean, I'm like a half hour in. I'm watching it in bits and pieces. It is so good. And nice. it's a great reminder about how this is not new territory, whether it was you know Bill Russell or Ali or Jim Brown. Um, you know, John uh, Carlos or Tommy Smith. I mean, this is stuff um, that, that's always been there. And I just, you know, where there might have been a reticence or you sort of had to really step out before if you were in sports to talk about politics. I, I think now people just recognize it for what it's it, what it is. There's a lot, there's a lot of intersection between the two. And I, I, I think it's great. It's a, I think it's a fantastic trend. It, now, now, I think you're 100% correct in regards to how long sports and politics and its intersection has been around, especially from more like an activism standpoint. But I do think it's interesting that from more of a media and journalism standpoint, that was murky territory and that was kind of a gray area. You being somebody that's been very long tenured in media as a journalist and all the way up to now where you are press secretary for the United States Senator of Oregon, um, who also happens to be the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, when did that turn or when did you realize that turn happening where this kind of became the norm for the media to actually start covering this and start coming out and asking athletes these types of questions instead of athletes sort of having to force feed the media because they usually wouldn't be willing to ask those types of questions or cover these types of topics? Yeah, it's a great question. I, 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 I'm sort of thinking as you're asking it about how is there sort of like one um, epiphany where it, it, you know, it sort of flipped. And I know that's not what you're asking, but sort of I'm just trying to pinpoint something. And yeah, just for how long really, you've been around. Yeah, just like, the only thing I can really come up with is I, I think with social media um, in the last whatever, however you want to measure, 10, 15 years where athletes are able to sort of get their own voices out there, that the media would look silly if they didn't start covering the stuff. Mm. So whereas, like, you know, you think, not that I I was, I'm not that old that I remember the 1968 Olympics, but I remember reading about it. And with, you know, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, you had a lot of largely, you know, white sports writers uh, covering black athletes in Mexico City, and they didn't want to do it. And they came from a different generation that didn't talk about it. It was just, you know, sports was in one corner and politics was in a, was in a separate corner. And let's be honest, a lot of them weren't qualified, perhaps, as sports writers then to ask political questions. And I, I, I you'd look silly now. Yeah. You, you know, you weren't able to. You know, if LeBron's talking about issue X or, you know, what, whatever athlete or coach, Steve Kerr, you know, Popovich, uh, Curry, anybody, um, and, and you weren't able to sort of converse with it uh, and, and and talk about it and opine on it. So I, I, I guess if I had to trace it to something sort of like the sort of the pop moment, it would be with social media where athletes were able to get their voices out there unfiltered and, you know, 
it they they were able to to do it without the filter of the media. Think about you know uh, Ali back in the day. Other than Howard Cosell, everybody else was sort of dumping on him for having uh, viewpoints. So I, I yeah, it, it it's a great question. I'm going to think about that one a little more. But that's my answer off the top. De- definitely. I mean, I, now, now you've I, I went and did a little bit of research on you here, Uh-oh. Hank Stern. And uh, again, as somebody who's been long tenured as a reporter, as a journalist, now as a press secretary, um, you started off working with the Associated Press out in Atlantic City. And was that 1987? So 87, I actually started in Oregon and then made my way to New Jersey. And I was in uh, Newark and Atlantic City for the next six years or so. Yeah. Now, now, you sent me something quite interesting, especially being yeah. that you're now <laughs> the press secretary for United States Senator Ron, Ron Wyden, who um, went up a lot against our former president, Donald Trump. And you sent me a photo that was quite interesting of you reporting on Donald Trump. I don't know what year this photo is from, but it's from a long time ago <laughs> as, an, some slack. as an AP reporter in Atlantic City. Um, first off, can you tell me a little bit about this and what it was like covering Donald Trump back then? And also fast forwarding, would you ever have imagined that you would be a press secretary for Senator Ron Wyden and having to kind of in Wyden's case, go up against a lot of the viewpoints of Donald Trump as the president of the United States of America. Yeah. Could could you ever have imagined that when this photo was taken, whatever year it was? The answer is is no way. I, I mean, it's just <laughs> I, it, 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 I, I, that photo was taken. I, I'm pretty sure it was a when the AP photographer sent it to me a few years ago. We were watching um, Holyfield train. Uh, for a fight, uh, must have been at Trump Plaza or the Atlantic City Convention Center. Trump was sort of the, the big boxing mogul back then, in addition to being a bankrupt casino owner. I, no, I mean, it, it was it, it is laughable. I, I mean, I would have thought the guy would have been, you know, in debtor's prison before he would become president <laughs> of the United States. I mean, it was he was he he, he had these. You know, Atlantic City got casino gambling in 78, and then Trump came in a little before I started there in um, 89, 90, something like that. Um, and he, 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 he didn't know what he was – I mean, he, he was borrowing money on top of borrowing money, and it's like – and he, you know, he got – he had to file – his casinos had to file bankruptcy. And right. it's, it's – it's, and covering him then, he was just sort of a – sort of like a carnival barker you, you know you didn't believe anything he said but there was no there was no like malice in it like then that that obviously came to the surface as he was running for president and then became president he was just sort of a he was just sort of a showman yeah um but but whose lies did no harm other than to his investors really right um and those poor people of, that I had to stay at those things hotels. back then too you know i, I you know I, I could send you clips of his casinos um, did not have a great reputation and, and incurred some fines for treatment of uh, people of color who were customers. Mm. I mean, it happened to other casinos as well, but I, there were a couple that were really pretty egregious, uh, but with, with both Asian and black customers. Um, so, I mean, that element, I guess, was always there, but to think that it would have metastasized into him becoming president of the United States and all the damage, no, it's it was... Uh, unimaginable. I can't. I, whatever the odds were back then, I I would have taken them. There's no way. Yeah, and no you would way. you would have been in the right place too. Atlantic City in the late '80s. That must have been an absolute western. <laughs> I mean, geez. it was. It, it, well, it's it sort of the you know the paradox of journalism. The, the more bizarre or whatever adjective you want to place on what Atlantic City was then, the better it was for journalism. I mean, hmm. we had great. I covered the Miss America pageant of all things. Mm-hmm. Um, I covered Trump and the casinos. There was the, the mafia, uh, was, you know, from uh, South Philly, the Nikki Scarfo family. There was municipal corruption. I mean, it, it, you didn't have to be super creative as a reporter to get on the on the national wire with stuff from Atlantic City. It was a it was a great beat. A great beat. 
Yeah, that's amazing. That I mean, and this photo looks awesome. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, the Looking good there, Hank. Looking good. The shadow there, I, I mean, I had long hair. That is not a mullet, though. It's just the way the light plays on that. I, I do have to uh, put inject a little hey, note you there. You don't got to explain any hairstyles to me, man. Are, the glasses are indefensible. <laughs> I chose those. But that is not a <laughs> No, nah, man, no. Nah. Like I said, it's just quite interesting just knowing, like, in, in your career path, you obviously couldn't have, mag- have imagined then. You knew you'd probably be in the media space, but you just don't know how. <laughs> you know what I mean? This yeah. game um, is it, so up and down being a journalist. There's a lot of transition that takes place. But to just see where you are now and then looking at this photo and the coverage back then, it, it is quite bizarre just to see how both of your career paths led to what it ultimately came to be, <laughs> having yeah. have covered him back then. So so I thought that was pretty interesting. But let's get to some, some more recent stuff here, Hank. Um, obviously, you know, we appreciate you so much for, for what it is that you allow – us to do and and the connection and sort of the relational dynamic that we're able to have with you and Senator Ron Whiten. And obviously, you know, just recently we had Senator Whiten host a roundtable discussion and he invited Kathy Engelbert and Kathy Engelbert being the WNBA commissioner. um, And there was obviously plenty others, former WNBA players, Thorns execs, Blazers execs, Ducks and Beavers women's head coaches, um, women's basketball head coaches, women's basketball players from Oregon and Oregon State. And and it was just a really cool event to be a part of. Um, But I want to ask from your lens and and having kind of been along this journey with Senator Wyden and him actually being – basically our political advocate and wanting to bring the WNBA here to PDX. Um, Just talk about kind of, you know, the start of that and kind of how that conversation came to be amongst you all. And then what your reaction is after having Commissioner Kathy Engelbert come and visit the city of Portland and what's sort of the optimism now surrounding it after that grand event. Yeah. In order, um, you know, Senator Wyden happens to be a huge basketball fan, which is a wonderful perk of the job because we do spend a lot of time as, you know, we're going around Oregon to you know, all of his town halls and other meetings around the state uh, in the car together. So it's like they're pretty long drives. So, you know, my kids will often ask, well, what do you guys talk about? It's like, well, we talked about basketball. Yeah. <laughs> sports a lot that, that's his interest. It's not the only thing we talk about, it, but it's nice to have somebody you work for who who shares that interest. So it's a longstanding interest of his. Um, and he, as you know, you've heard him say he, he played, uh, back in the day, to, you know, quite, uh, some renown in California, uh, back in the sixties and then, uh, played a college basketball. And as he would tell you, uh, that did not go as he dreamed. And so he eventually made his way into politics, but the love of sports continued. Um, and so, you know, short, short answer is he, he's always interested in opportunities for sports, sort of recognizes, and you've heard him talk about this, how it, it is a significant part of a community, just like, you know, music or the arts or, you know, parks. They're, they're all sort of go into a quality of life for a community. And so um, as the WNBA has obviously grown over the last quarter century and now within the last couple of years been very vocal about wanting and having the ability to expand, he thought it made for a natural fit. Um, and as you guys also uh, heard him talk about at that round table and in other settings, it, it, it sure seems like a natural fit. You don't really have to be a sports fan in Oregon to know it. If you just get the numbers put in your face, you look at the Thorns and their attendance, you look at the U of O, OSU, UP, um, you know, uh, PSU, um, all uh, doing super well uh, at the gate compared to other places uh, for women's sports. And so he thought it would be a nice idea to uh, help uh, be on the team. There are others, obviously, locally who are very interested in it, uh, but you can obviously magnify some of that attention if you're a United States senator and uh, to host this roundtable to sort of keep the conversation and keep the momentum going. And I had pretty high hopes for it, just sort of as the list of folks started coming together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then actually being there, and you know, I'll let you guys speak to it, because obviously I'm not an unbiased observer, but I, I just thought there was an energy in the play <laughs> of 
wow, the potential. And, you know, there was that middle school girls team and you, you could sort of see it, not to get corny, but it, in their eyes of looking at, uh, as you said, a lot of uh, former WNBA players and people in um, positions of leadership and players um, and coaches who very kindly uh, spent their day off driving up from Eugene and Corvallis uh, talking about this. And I, you know, it's an overused word in politics. I, I, if I could think of a better uh, synonym, I would, but there was, I mean, there was a synergy. There, there was just, it was just, it was, it was a great, it was a great brew of people and ideas and excitement. And look, I don't pretend to have any inside information on what the WNBA is going to do, but it was, I thought it was obviously significant that the commissioner flew cross country to come <laughs> see and hear all of that. Um, and I think it's, I think there's a lot of excitement going forward and that I think can snow continue snowballing uh, to hopefully get a, get a franchise here. Yeah, Hank, I, I got to say, because uh, to the listeners out there, you're talking about Ron Wyden. He pl- had some success and I know he's not here to minimize this, but this is what people need to understand. He played Palo Alto high school under Clem Weiser and averaged 25 and a half points a game his senior year. That's hooping. Yeah. That's hooping. Yeah. I, I was not familiar with his game. I was like, oh, yeah, that's cute. Our senator likes to, bas- likes to play basketball. I'm like, no, no, no. He was a baller. So that needs to be said right there. But, but yo, you're so right because, you know, we were in there, and and I think having that middle school girls team there, too, was really, like, where it all sort of, like, the, you know, where, like, all of that energy or that synergy, if you will, uh, you know, ca- came to a focal point in that, like, everyone that was, like, when we were done with the thing, like, everyone kind of kicked it until they had to leave. Right, Hank? I mean, everyone was just hanging out and eating food and I'm walking around and everyone's walking around and we're chopping game, talking to people, introducing hi, how you doings. But most of the conversation that you heard was just about basketball. Yep. Not about the WNBA necessarily, but just like, Ooh, did you see this person put it? And it was just like, I, I, I had a real, I had a real good moment where I remember I was standing there and I'm like, Oh, this is like, a comfortable place for me because I know for a fact that everyone around here shares the same passions that I do. And it's being displayed in that room. So that, that was major. I I think your read is perfect because a lot of times you'll have events that are good events and everything, but everybody sort of scatters right afterwards. Right. People, people hung there and they wanted to like feed off of it, all of it. I, I, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with your take I, I just thought. I mean, until that, they had to go, great. until everyone had to go to the Blazer game, which is understandable. They had to go to the Blazer game, which was, <laughs> or, or was it the Bucks game that night? Yeah, yeah. Oh man, oh, man. <laughs> they had no answer for those guys. <laughs> it was brutal. Few do for that for that Greek freak down there. Yeah, yeah for sure. Could have thrown up a hundred if he wanted to. It was bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's 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 bad. something different. He's some different. All right, Hank, and we we might get to the Blazers at some point in this episode. But we still got Super Bowl amongst other things to get to get to. But before that, you are a Georgetown University alum, right? Uh, now, very, pr- very proud. Absolutely. Spencer and I, obviously, college basketball commentators. Right. You obviously we've established what sports mean to you and your world for Georgetown University in particular. One of the most storied college basketball programs there are. For well, one, past tense though. Okay, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> he might have said "were." I'm not quite sure. Were, yeah. were. I mean, storied yeah, meaning that the whole story matters. I know right now. I know right now. We're not. We're not particularly story in the climactic like, part of the story. Story like a Goosebumps <laughs> book. You know what I'm about? <laughs> Put it kindly. Go ahead. <laughs> I want to take it back to for one when you attended there, and then just to speak to Georgetown University Hoya basketball. What it's meant to you, its cultural significance, because that's really the the storied part that I'm alluding to, is the cultural significance of Georgetown basketball to college basketball and just the sports landscape at large. But if there's anybody that can speak to it, it's the George George uh, the Georgetown University alum that we have on this podcast right now, Hank Stern. Go ahead and talk about it. Well, you're very generous to indulge me. I, I I could give you two hours. I will try to boil it down <laughs> to two two minutes because I I got a lot of thoughts. So yes, uh, uh, I was there in uh, in the in the heyday. I was lucky enough to be there. In fact, I went there because of the the basketball prowess. True story. Um, 
that the so I was 82. That's how old I am. I was in high school. I'll let you do the math. Um, and Georgetown was playing Oregon State in the Elite Eight that year. Uh, and I was still trying to decide whether or not uh, I wanted to go cross country growing up here in uh, lovely Beaverton. And uh, I grew up and still am a huge Oregon Ducks fan. And um, the Beavers in basketball regularly beat the, beat the Ducks like a conga drum. And Georgetown destroyed Oregon State that mm. day. I mean, just destroyed it. It's 69-45. Ewing, Patrick Ewing, uh, then player Patrick Ewing was was dunking on him. And it, it was just – it was two different brands of basketball. Yeah. I mean, Oregon State was very deliberate. Great team, um, but Georgetown was just more aggressive and just better. It, it, it was fantastic. I, like, I want, I want to be a part of that. So uh, went back there, and it was, it was all that. And when you talk about the cultural significance, uh, well, I'll, I'll speak for myself, and then I'll speak for sort of the country or about the country at large. For me, growing up here, you know, the Blazers had the one title, and the Ducks were. I mean, terrible in football. I, I just, I, it's laughable now when people complain about a nine, 10 win season. I have season tickets and I hear it around me. I'm just, you, you have no idea how bad it was. Um, and I grew up as a San Francisco Giants fan. They were pretty crummy back then. So I'd never really rooted for a winner, a consistent winner. You know, after the Blazers 77 title, they had sort of lapsed into 41 and 41 mediocrity in the mid eighties. And I went back there. I mean, Georgetown was hated. Yeah, hated by so much of America. And let's call it what it was by a lot of white America. Yeah, because uh, John Thompson was uh, one of the first prominent uh, black coaches in um, in Division One basketball, other than the HBCUs, of course. And most of the team was black. And so sort of like the L.A. Raiders were back then. Um, you, you would see Georgetown gear like you would see Raiders gear. Or, or actually the Oakland Raiders then, but then became the LA Raiders, um, sort of around the country. And it was it was sort of a national phenomenon. Mm. And to, to root for a winner back then, for me, was it was it was incredible. And you would go, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to go to the Big East tournament in, in Madison Square Garden wow. with Syracuse and Pearl Washington and St. John's and Chris Mullet and Walter Berry. And That's it was nasty. as intense a it's basketball dope. as you could you could imagine. It was it was yeah, it was. It was. It, it, I, you knew it back then. You knew it was like you were part of something special, but you don't know it because you're 18, 19 years old. And right. You're a dope. And now, and you know, so that continued even after I left with the 90s, with Iverson and all that. But the last, oh my goodness, the last 20 years <laughs> have just been brutal. And, you know, they had Thompson's son uh, came to coach, uh, uh, John Thompson uh, III, and he. He had success at first, uh, but they just they kept getting knocked out um, in the first and second round of the tournaments. It's like it's the number two and the number three seed, and then he left, and now Patrick's the coach. And uh, Patrick is on my Mount Rushmore of all time favorite athletes, but this coaching thing, it's just it's brutal. Yeah. And not that anybody, not, not that any of your any of your listeners would follow Georgetown Twitter, but it is there's not there's one person there. listening right now in their car going, I already know exactly what Hank is saying. <laughs> totally. <Wild enough. laughs> Who feels this like I do is just so painful. Okay. So I, painful. I, I I gotta follow up on that. If if Ewing Please. is one, if Ewing is one of your four on your yeah. all time uh, athlete Mount Rushmore list. Who are the other three? Oh, it's so hard. So hard. Uh, well, it can the, change, the, and this is subject to change. Mainly from childhood, Maurice Lucas, uh, okay. who was on the okay. championship team. I wore number twenty because of Luke. I, I, I worshipped him. Worship, yeah, uh, passed way too soon. Uh, this one may go a little back on you, but Ronnie Lee. Does that name mean anything? Not to me. It was okay. So he was a duck uh, basketball player okay. in the early seventies. Uh, and the Ducks back then, uh, they were actually decent, but in a 16-team tournament, they, you know, they, they couldn't get a sniff uh, at going to the NCAAs. But they were pretty good under him. Uh, he was a guard, very aggressive. I, I think he's still actually, believe it or not, the the Pac-12's all-time leading scorer um, just because it was, you know, he played all four years and all that. Uh, so he's on there. So I've got Lee. And, man... I, Dame may be number four. 
he he may he may be the fourth. I mean, I can think of others. Sort of, you know, Marcus. Uh, there was a Ducks quarterback in the uh, early '80s, Reggie Ogburn, who I really loved. Yeah, uh, any number of San Francisco Giants, starting with Barry Bonds and going back to Chili Davis or Jeffrey Leonard, but. Dame, man, it's something special. And to talk about anguish, watching uh, all that's going on around him with uh, the Blazers, not, not exactly uh, meeting his needs to uh, put players around him. So, yeah. Anyway, th- yeah. Th- that would that, that'd be my four. I like it. I like it. Let's talk some Super Bowl, Hank. Obviously, we're coming off of Super Bowl weekend. The Kansas City Chiefs, Chiefs came out on top. Um, I, I call it the Black on Black Bowl. Being that it was the first time ever that we had two black quarterbacks, which happened to turn out and create for a great product, at least on yeah. the field. Um, yeah. What What was just some of your general thoughts? Really more so, I mean, we obviously will get into some of the, the, the details of the game and, of course, the halftime show with Rihanna. But I really kind of want to start with Mahomes and yeah. what this means for Mahomes' legacy to date, because obviously we know there's still plenty more to come for him, being that he's so young and has already achieved so much. Like, if he decided to quit playing football today, he's already a first ballot Hall of Famer, which means the potential for him to be the greatest quarterback of all time is very much in sight. Um, Where do you stand on Patrick Mahomes after the season he's had winning the MVP and Super Bowl MVP, and obviously adding another ring to his ongoing ring count. The first thing, I mean, the first word that leaps to mind is you're going through all of his accolades. And he's fun. I mean, he is fun to watch. Yeah. He's different. Not fun, to cut, fun is wor- not, not to cut then, you off, but but yeah. he, he's totally Steph Curry of the NFL. Yes. He's totally absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. He is a playmaker out there doing things that – you have never seen before. I mean, the whole, all the sidearm throws, the, the, the stretching the ball out, you know, to get the first down as he's going to, to the sidelines. I mean, other guys have done it, but he, I mean, he does it with flair, but, but he wins. It's not just like, like Steph does it with flair. Sure. Like a lot of guys, Pete Maravich played with flair. Yeah. I mean, but he didn't win until he went to the Celtics at the end of his career, not to dump on the late Pete Maravich, but I mean, guys do stuff all the time. It's like, Oh, they're fun to watch, but he's fun and he wins. Um, yeah. And he seems like a good guy on top of the whole thing. So, I mean, he, yeah, I, he, he is a pleasure to watch. Yeah. He really is. Yeah. No, he, I, like I said, I, I, and I think at this point, a, as you mentioned, just him being fun, but also just as a dual threat quarterback, like he seems to be the way Steph Curry revolutionized the game with his ability to shoot three pointers. Mahomes seems to be sort of revolutionizing the game as a dual-threat QB. Like, not often do we see dual-threat QBs win multiple championships, first and foremost. I think, like, outside of him, you can maybe say Steve Young, (laughs) and that's a a big maybe. And obviously, Steve Steve Young won multiple championships, but part of it, too, was the team that he had around him, where Mahomes, especially this season, when you lose the – arguably the fastest player to ever play the game and big time playmaker in Tyreek Hill. Like we kind of expected Mahomes not to win it this year. And I even consider like, you know, the most recent dual threat quarterback who I think almost could have had this kind of success would have been somebody like Russell Wilson, which I think had that play not happened at the end of the game and had he handed it off to Marshawn Lynch, I think we talk about Russell Wilson in a completely different light than we even do right now. And that's obviously including how terrible of a year that they had in Denver this year. But a dual-threat QB winning multiple championships has just not quite been a formula in the NFL. And I feel like Patrick Mahomes is revolutionizing the NFL in that way, as a dual threat QB, the way that you never heard about three point shooting being what it was going to take for an NBA team to be able to win most multiple championships or for there to be dynasties. Dynasty was more synonymous to big men in the NBA, obviously outside of Michael Jordan, who still had just insane athleticism and wasn't beating you from beyond the arc. He was just a unique specimen in his own right. But Mahomes and Curry, to me, what Curry has been able to do with the three ball in the NBA, I feel like Mahomes is starting to do that for the dual threat QB in the NFL. 
and and even you look at his counterpart in the Super Bowl this this year, and Jalen Hurts, who played a hell of a football game, yeah, but. Does. Part of the reason is because what he's able to also do with his legs as well and throwing the football. So I feel like, you know, this is a step in the direction of the NFL is going to have to become more of a dual threat QB league as long as Mahomes is around. Because I think that's the only way you'll even give yourself a chance to beat him. Yeah. So a, b- a bunch of thoughts uh, uh, on all that, which is was all totally on point. I, to me, um, I I, I, I happen to read this piece and there have been other pieces written about this, but you think back about like all the other uh, quarterbacks, dual threat, who in many cases were black quarterbacks in the sixties and seventies who never got that chance. You know, they had to flip when they got out of college, uh, largely at HBCUs uh, to, you know, play, play cornerback or safety in the NFL wide receiver because they just weren't given a chance. Yeah. I think with Mahomes, it's funny with Curry. I don't watch, I don't don't watch a lot of pop Warner football or anything, but you know, there's all these stories about you go to any high school game now, or, you know, AAU game, even at the lower levels, you got a bunch of kids hoisted up threes or like, are all the pop order games or kids like throwing sidearm? Yeah, I believe they are. And I don't go to a lot of pop yeah. Warner games either, but I think dual threat quarterbacking, at least at that level, I, yeah. I would imagine is, is far more popular. <laughs> and, and what it seems to be is you actually kind of, take that away as you mentioned usually the dual threat qbs that you hear about that are so great you hear about them in pop warner you hear about them in high school and then college and then there's a lot of undoing where either they gotta move and play an entirely different position once they get to college and then ultimately if they could make it to the nfl and are lucky enough to do that they usually play a different position or the rare one makes it, but he has to kind of turn those legs off and figure out a way to turn those legs off and be able to become a primarily, you know, throwing quarterback, if you will, in order to land a spot in the league. And that's why I said for Mahomes, it seems sort of like the opposite where he makes the NFL look like Pop Warner. Yeah, he does. Where Curry is more so influencing the young AAU kids and turning them into three-point shooters at eight years old. Mahomes is the one that's bringing sort of the Pop Warner type of fun to the NFL now. And so it's almost kind of like a reverse thing there where Mahomes makes you seem like your everyday kid in the backyard that's willing to try those things outside in the street or at younger levels of, of football. And he's actually bringing that to the NFL now, which, again, isn't often allowed, at least not to the magnitude of somebody that has now won multiple championships at that position. Let me ask you this. Do you worry at all about, like, guys like him getting injured? I, you know, the speed of the game at that level. I, you know, he's obviously he, – he can dodge and he, he runs out of bounds and he slides and all that. But, you know, I think about RG3 or uh, guys' predecessors who tried to play that way. I hope and pray that Mahomes is around for 20 more years, just like Brady, uh, so we can watch all that develop. Because I think you're right. If that's the case, he's going to amass some crazy numbers and he's going to give us a lot of great memories. I, I just hope, you know, they got to figure out a way to keep him healthy. And, you know, maybe with the rules changes that sort of help the quarterback there on that regard, maybe that'll help. Well, I mean, I I, I can't quite say that I, I, I disagree with you there because the man hobbled through the playoffs this year. <laughs> All right. Oh, like, yeah. like it wasn't Guts, a clean, Guts, smooth man. sailing playoffs. I mean, even in that game, I don't know what happened at halftime. If he took a shot or what the he, case he was. Met, he met up with the Blazers training staff <laughs> and that tore it all. They hooked him up, bro. <laughs> The reward of your Toradol jokes on Twitter, I saw you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yes, I do think that that is a concern, the fact that Mahomes is able to do that at that level. But, again, having the success that he's having doing that, it's like you, you kind of live with it. You know what I'm saying? And, yeah, and I, yeah. think, I think the, the money that he's made, obviously he's got a contract for upwards of $400 million with the Chiefs. It's like, huh? You'll kind of live with what it is that he will bring to the table, although he might not be able to sustain a career as long as somebody like a Brady. So, yeah, while I think there is risk to it, I do think that there's an entertainment value that he's bringing from the quarterback position that 
we haven't seen at this level. We've seen the entertainment from that position from guys like a Michael Vick or, or a Donovan McNabb or even a Cam Newton, if you will. But again, they weren't able to do it at a level where they were able to win multiple championships and counting. And again, I think a, a, a perfect example is Russell Wilson. We talk about his legacy completely different. Like, to me, if you compare Russell Wilson and Aaron Rodgers today, I think general the general consensus for most people would be Aaron Rodgers. Had Russell Wilson won that second championship, I think it would be a no-brainer of Russell Wilson as far as the general consensus is concerned. Yep. Because obviously... You know, Russell was kind of that dual threat guy. And obviously, Aaron knows how to use his legs as well. But we know Aaron for more as a passer, where I think Russell was much more of a threat with his legs more so than Aaron Rodgers was. So I just think the conversation is now becoming different from a revolutionary standpoint now that Mahomes is doing what he's doing. So, yes, I do think there's an injury risk that comes with it. But, hey, man. As long as he's producing the way he is right now, it's a risk that I'd be willing to take, and obviously the Chiefs organization is willing to take as well. Yeah, it's paid dividends for them. That's a great point about Wilson, too. It's a different conversation if he gets a second one. I haven't really thought about that. I, right. I, I think it, it's a completely it's different convo. Five yards away. Yeah. <laughs> I get, it's a completely yeah. different conversation. If you get, What did you think about the halftime show, Hank? Spencer? And Spencer, I, I want to really pass this more off to you because Spencer is our resident musician here on the Wake Up and Win podcast. I DJ, but I'm not a musician. Spencer is uh, our resident musician. completely off the Spencer because – Here we go. Wow. <laughs> here's my, here's my oh, wow. Look it. That's when I go out – not this time, but this year, but the years past, it's when I go out and smoke a cigar. <laughs> I, 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 I don't watch the commercials. I don't watch the halftime. It's, it's not my thing. I, okay. I, it's a total hole in my game, so I'm, I'm going to hand it off to Spencer. You got it. So. Well, I mean, the thing about the Super Bowl is, is that it ma- it doesn't really. It, it's such a weird performance space because it only matters compared to other Super Bowls. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you yeah. don't. It's a tough thing. It, well, which I mean, I, I think is, I think it's cool because it, it, there, it's unlike any other sort of concert broadcast experience. Yes, agree. You know what I'm saying? Where they have to like. They have a limited amount of angles, and so they get creative. Like you saw Rihanna up there on those floating platforms, and dancers were all, you know all over the place. They, they do some pretty creative stuff chore- choreographically, I guess was how you would say that. So, so that's where I thought it was really good. But I mean, this is gonna be mean because she's pregnant. But like her vocal performance wasn't great. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't blown away. Now, is Rihanna a blow you away type of singer? No. Yeah, but she agreed. has she has a deep deep catalog of absolute smash hits. hits. I bet you Kanye was sitting there crying into a bottle of liquor, going, "Damn, that's half of my production work right there." Yeah, that I can't. Even, <laughs> they wouldn't even let him in the arena. But that's beside the point. I don't think it was very. I, I, in terms of like best halftime ranking, halftime performances, it doesn't crack the top three, or even top, top five, five for that maybe. matter. Yeah, so it's kind top of just anything. like a so so halftime performance. I just love the music, so I'm sitting there by myself watching the game, really gigging, like enjoying the music. So see, that's where I was at with it. See, I was there with a whole bunch of people. Um, I, I was at a Super Bowl party. I actually went down to California for the Super Bowl, and um, I would say that the performance to me felt a lot more transactional than it did like a a dream come true moment, which usually it does for a lot of people that do get to perform at the Super Bowl. So as you mentioned, like, 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 as you mentioned, comparatively, like being able to perform a halftime show at the Super Bowl is like a dream come true for most artists and most artists and most acts. And this felt a lot more transactional, not just for Rihanna, but for the NFL, obviously as well, because a Rihanna is who she is, but Rihanna is not actively making music. She's not actively touring or performing. And then you just come out of the gates and decide to perform for the NFL at the Super Bowl. Now I did see a statistic that, it was 113 million people that watched the Super Bowl. It was 118 million people that performed, I mean, that tuned in for the Rihanna's halftime show performance. So, again, from a transactional standpoint, that's great for the NFL. She did exactly what was expected. But also, it's not all her fault that it was transactional because Rihanna is one of the people that's been very outspoken about the NFL and her support for Colin Kaepernick. So, for one, I was just quite shocked that she was willing to do the performance. And then for two, 
I do believe, especially now that we do have the announcement of her being pregnant, this was transactional for her because it just gave her catalog new life because we're not getting thing, anything new from Rihanna in a really long time, if ever. And I think obviously now that, you know, she's having another kid and I don't usually get in people's business in that way, but it's like we haven't gotten music from her in a really, really long time, um, you know, and now she did the, the soundtrack a thing recently was it black panther she did a soundtrack recently it wasn't black panther it was after that but as far as like her releasing an album i don't see it or her even touring for that matter which is usually where you work a lot of those records and you and you kind of capitalize on a lot of those records is being able to go out and tour for her she just doesn't have to do that anymore because she was able to catapult her music career into entrepreneurship in a way that we just don't often see so for me it was transactional for her because not that her catalog was ever dead, but this gave it a boost in a way that probably no other platform could for her music in particular. And I don't foresee us getting any new music from, from Rihanna in the near future at all, if ever, because entrepreneurial, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, she's doing so great. I mean, she's a billionaire. She's got the Fenty brand that's doing so well. So for me, it was transactional but for both. For her, it was transactional and it boosted the catalog that she already has because I don't expect her to make much more music in the future. And for the NFL, she had more viewers than the actual game. So it just felt like a transactional thing for me there and it is what it is in that regard because the performance wasn't that great. Like, there's been much better performances again, and that's where I said the dream come true piece. Well, like, people put a, a little bit more into those performances it, than she did or maybe was able to do because of her current circumstances, but... The way I see it is I don't like, know. The way I'm looking at it is like, Rihanna... It, there's not a lot of sense outside of a vacuum of like the 21st century social media age for a pop star to turn into a billionaire CEO. If you're not using that platform that you've built to directly, you know, affect your brand that you're yeah. now a company that you're trying to run for sure. And so when you think about it like that, it makes a lot more sense that people like Rih the Rihannas of the world are going, well, I can run a company because they know how to make viral moments. They know how to leverage their image to then, you know, to, to turn the, the, the transaction of buying a product more into, no, you're actually buying a piece of me, Rihanna. Yeah. yeah. And you saw that moment where she pulls out the little makeup kit and, and, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and powders yeah, yeah, yeah. her nose for a second. So like she was, she was hitting those notes, you know what I'm saying? And, Again, for me, like just talking dollars and cents, like somebody, could, you know, somebody could come come up to Rihanna and be like, okay, well, we have a forty million dollar ad campaign laid out that's going to be over the course of X amount of months. It's going to be posters and all this type of shit. You're going to have to sit in all these meetings and approve or disapprove all of these, you know, whatever they're going to do. Or it's like you could pay the NFL a few million dollars and just do it all in seven and a half minutes. It makes much more sense. If you're Rihanna, to be like, well, shit, I could dust off a couple of the old chestnuts, yeah. and get out there. You know what I'm saying? For sure. And so, and so that that to me was where I thought, which which from a musician standpoint sucks because I'm like, well, now the Super Bowl halftime shows are just going to get worse, like musically, because <laughs> that's not we're not we're not going there to see great musical. When we saw Prince, when we saw Beyonce, we were like, we're about to get a show. Yeah, show. yeah, yeah. And that's what they gave you. Yeah. Rihanna didn't do that from a musical standpoint. From a, yeah, and again, again, to me, and she has the hits, which, I mean, anybody who's performing at a halftime show, you've got to have the hits. Like, that's just first and foremost there. But Barry Manilow. But beyond that. Super Bowl 24, <laughs> let's go. But beyond that, I don't see her touring <laughs> again maybe in the next at least half a decade, well, if, ASAP if not longer. Her, she ain't going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> So that was my stance, man. It was like, uh, the performance was all did right. You, did you like, did you, you didn't even watch it, you said, Hank? You just smoked I a did, cigar? I did not. But, you know, the statistic you mentioned, I, I, I got to go do like some sort of deep Google dive. I, is that common that the halftime show gets more viewers than the game itself? That's that's astounding to me. I, I don't know, but it did this time. <laughs> I, I, and I, 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 I need to look that up, too. Look. There's got to be some historical comparison. That That's interesting to me. 
Yeah, no, no, I don't know. And again, I think that just speaks to already the fact that everybody around the world that would be willing to pay top dollar to go to a Rihanna tour, they know it's not going to happen. So they made sure to tune in for that particular moment. And again, I think based off the performance and you just add all the pieces together, I don't think we see her perform again for at least another five years, at least. So that's where I stand with it. That's where I stand with it. But, Hank, man, we appreciate you greatly for joining us here today. It was a phenomenal conversation. We're glad you accepted the invite here on the podcast. Um, you know, and, and, again, we appreciate the work that you're doing, you know, with Senator Wyden. We we big up. You listen to the podcast, so you know it, but we big up Senator Wyden all the time. But but he's the face, you know, as as the elected official um, as the politician, as the as the person in the position that he's in. But it, it takes a team for him to be able to maneuver in the way that he does. And there's no denying how important of a position that you hold in the space of press secretary for him that allows him to be able to do the great work that he's been able to do. And, hey, man, he got reelected. So you got a job for a little while longer, huh? <laughs> as long as I didn't say anything too stupid in the last hour, yeah, I <laughs> Nobody listens to this podcast. <laughs> Hey, but he does. No, I, yeah, Ron does. Yeah, right. Your boss listens to this podcast. No. Yeah, there's no doubt of that. You talk about stuff we listen to and do on the road. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Are you, are you going to come back, Hank? I would I would love to. You guys have been so kind to indulge me with all my uh, sports peccadillos and stuff. Let me yammer on. No, nah, man, you gave me up. Very Ronnie Lee, Kamikaze Kids. I'm all, I'm all in now. I'm about to learn. Uh, and I'll, you're tell right. you about the, I'll tell you about the Ronnie Lee story if I come on the next time at Cougar Cage Camp at Washington State with George Raveling, who's like another legend in my mind. Lee was a uh, counselor there, and I'll uh, – I'll uh, I'll tease it for the next time. But Ronnie Lee said to me, "It was one of the great, one of my the few great athletic moments of my life." Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm in. I right. Book that. Yeah. Well, right, cool. Well, again, man, we we appreciate you for joining us, Hank. Thanks again. It's been a pleasure, truly. All right. On that note, we're gonna leave y'all the only way that we know how, and that is to stay woke and go win. Mm-hmm.